when you're someplace where you're you're just clinging on to any shred of human decency and things that make you feel like you're back at home. I've read so many of those kind of stories as well, as well as sacrifice, uh, things they've witnessed. It's whatever the woman chooses to share as her story is, and that's why this myriad, 300,000 of them, sounds like a lot, but we need 2.7 million more. So if anybody knows a they've served, their grandmother served way back when, their great aunt, their sister, their daughter. A lot of dads are proudly claiming their daughter's place here at the memorial by registering their story of service. So you do not have to be the person that served if you know somebody, especially if they're no longer with us. That's Phyllis Wilson, a United States Army veteran of 37 years who is now serving as president of the Military Women's Memorial Foundation a gem that hides in plain sight outside the grand entrance to Arlington National Cemetery. Welcome, I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. And I'm Ian Fitzpatrick, and this is World Footprints. The Military Women's Memorial is the United States' only major national memorial to honor the more than three million women who have served in the military since the American Revolution. Behind the beautiful walls of the memorial's hemicycle structure is a 33,000 square foot building that provides educational programs and exhibits. Its latest exhibit is called The Color of Freedom, honoring the diversity of America's servicewomen. The building also houses the only historical repository documenting all military women's service. Preserving the historical accounts of women's service in the military is important. That's why the Military Women's Memorial has launched a challenging but important mission to record the stories of every woman who served or continues to serve our country through a free national registry. Currently, only 300,000 military women ranging in age from 24 to 104, have included their stories in the registry. That's just 10% of the 3 million plus who have served since the American Revolution. The Memorial Foundation seeks to capture the millions of inspiring stories that have yet to be told. Like many of you who have visited the Arlington National Cemetery, we have passed by the beautiful Military Women's Memorial without realizing its significance or the travel stories, life journeys, and rich legacy of American women's military history it maintains. I gotta tell you, I'm, I'm never surprised when people say they've never heard that there is such a thing as a Military Women's Memorial that honors the three million women that have defended this nation all the way back to the Revolutionary War. Women back then disguised themselves as men to fight and die on the battlefield uh, all the way to today. But I joined the army in the early eighties and I did not find out about the Military Women's Memorial, which opened in 97, 1997. I didn't find out about it until 2013. So where was I and what was I doing? I was one of those women that this memorial stands for I didn't know about it. So why would I think America knows about it? But here's the really cool part. Where are we located? At the grand entrance to Arlington National Cemetery. People have seen it. They've seen this beautiful curved wall with a fountain and a reflecting pool out front. And they think that is the Military Women's Memorial, that beautiful wall, the fountain and the pool. Not knowing that behind there 
is 33,000 square feet of an education center, 200 seat movie theater. And we tell the story down the whole timeline from Revolutionary War till today and how women have been able, if even against the law, illegally to serve our country until we were finally legally allowed to do it, even though all of the restrictions that they put on us to today, where now every job specialty in the military is finally completely open to us, provided man or woman, you must meet the criteria for that particular job specialty, that career field. If you're strong enough, fast enough, sharp enough, smart enough, whatever it may be, you can qualify for that job. So we've seen things change radically in just about 250 years. So that's not too bad. As an Army veteran of 37 years, we wondered if the acknowledgement of women's presence in the military has improved their visibility in terms of society's consciousness. Well, I wish I had a good answer for that, but I will tell you, it, it continues to this day. Uh, I've been the president of the memorial for less than two years. And when I was, I knew that the position was uh, being advertised and I thought, gosh, you know, I'm interested, but I'm not, so many years, like you said, 37 years in the Army, jumping out of airplanes, doing all that stuff and trying to just prove I'm as good as any other soldier, not any other woman soldier, any other soldier. And so this idea of a military women's memorial, even though I was aware of it by 2019, six years prior, I had claimed my spot by telling my story into our database here. I parked at a parking spot at a grocery store and in a veteran parking space. How dare I? 37 years was not enough time, apparently. I get out of the car and a gentleman says, hey, that's veteran parking. Is your husband with you? And, and sadly, these things, I talk with so many women and they get the same runaround. You know, you're not a veteran or you go seeking medical care someplace where veterans go and they're looking all around and all they see is one woman sitting in a waiting room and they're they go back inside and then they finally come out and they call the last name and they're shocked when it's a woman that stands up to answer. Three million of us have served. I think we're ready to say, recognize us. We're not invisible. We have served. We've died. 174 women have died in service since 9-11. We've paid our dues. It's time to just be recognized. But Ian, I wish I could tell you why that has not happened yet. A lot of times it doesn't fall into their consciousness. To be fair, for many years in certain parts of the military, you didn't see women. The combat arms, you were an infantry person. You you know, I mean, until five years ago, you couldn't, a woman could not be an infantry soldier. It wasn't allowed. And so those, especially the men, the gentlemen that served in those particular combat arms arenas, we were legally precluded from serving in those roles, so they just didn't see us often. And I think in their mindset, it's another guy that is a service member, not not a woman. Uh, and we're, we're nearly between 17 and 20% of all people that serve currently are women. Granted, we're not a 50%, but you have to want to join first, and then secondarily, you have to feel welcome when you do serve in any capacity, uh, whether your civilian job or military. Phyllis says that having people like Senator Tammy Duckworth from Illinois and even the newly minted female toy soldiers does help with raising the profile of women in the military. When you go back to talk about such as Senator Tammy Duckworth and, and this continuation of services, yes, absolutely. Her helicopter crashes, she loses both legs. She then goes on and serves 
in Illinois as the director of veteran affairs there and then moves into the national arena, becomes then a representative, a congresswoman, and ultimately now as a senator and continues to champion things because she's lived it and she's felt it and she's seen it. And we know that we have a champion in the Senate. More and more women veterans are choosing to serve in elected positions, whether locally, nationally, certainly on Capitol Hill. And that's a great thing. We just unveiled a new exhibit here called The Color of Freedom, right? Honoring the diversity of America's service women because I'm Caucasian and, you know, it was hard enough being a white girl in the military, I got to tell you, trying to prove this little skinny runt back in the day could jump out of an airplane and do whatever and run as fast as and keep up with the guys was enough. So you have like a double crucible. The military is hard for the men as well. It's meant to be hard. It's no easy task and it's not meant to be. It shouldn't be. So as a woman that joins, you feel this sense of I got to keep up. I got to prove I'm as good as anybody else, male or female. And then you add, add now the complexion of color. I just talked with Dr. Betty Mosley-Brown, an amazing Marine veteran. I love Betty so much. But she talks about being an African-American woman before she ever opens her mouth. She's prejudged on, in the, you know, like she's even told me, I, I suddenly lose 10. She's a PhD. She loses 10 IQ points before she ever speaks because she's a woman of color. This is crazy, but these are, we have to have the conversations. We have to continue to shine the light on this in order to fix it. And that's why this exhibit includes Tammy Duckworth because she is a woman of color and what she's continuing to do. They, these incredible attacks that we're seeing now on Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. I have a son in the military that met, fell in love with and married a Philippine Ameri well, she wasn't. A, she became an American citizen after they met, married. So I have grandsons that look more Asian than they do like me. And the idea that just by walking down the street could get them sucker punched. I mean, we have got to have these conversations. And I think people like Tammy Duckworth and others are emblematic of you've got to be forceful and strong and keep the light shining on these problem sets. But all of these women, I mean, back to the Revolutionary War, to pre-Rosa Parks, Sarah Keyes Evans, who broke down barriers, refused to yield her seat and move to the back of the bus three years before Rosa Parks, army private, mm -hmm. arrested for being disorderly conduct. And she, she changed history because of what she, as a soldier, she was unwilling to say, no, I, I'll serve this country, but the country's gotta serve me back. The Military Women's Memorial Foundation determined that one way to serve the millions of women who have sacrificed for this country would be to honor them by preserving and sharing their inspiring and courageous stories, but they've only begun to scratch the surface. There's three million women that have defended this nation over nearly 250 years, but we have 300,000 of their stories currently as part of this national repository. Every woman that has ever served in uniform or served with, in some cases in World War II, American Red Cross nurses went overseas and served. They're eligible to tell their stories into our database. And so we have one-tenth, we have 2.7 million women, yet their stories are not in this repository. And they deserve 
to tell their stories here, that it lives forevermore, because the mosaic of every one of these intricate little, some are short stories, some are long stories, but when you put them all together, that's the only way we get a full and true picture of what has transpired over time. Because my argument is military women not only change the military, we change society. The things that we saw and we were fortunate, I mean, white women in World War II would not stand for the segregation with their black sisters. They were not gonna have it. And so the women led this desegregation in the military before the big military machine did so. It, we just knew it wasn't right. Plus, we also were a very small cohort. So it was much easier for us to say, wait, wait, why did, no, no, they're gonna eat dinner with us. They're going to lodge with us. And I think that those kind of things need to be told, but unless more women step forward and claim what we call your rightful place in history by registering your story, and it's so easy to do, you just go to our website, womensmemorial.org and in the top right corner it says register her service you click on that you create an account and you start filling out your information and you can change it if you didn't like the picture you put in or you have a new memorable experience and that's the nuggets are these memorable experiences not only when you served what branch of service but the stories that are told within memorable experiences, I can't get enough of them. I love every one of them. Some make me cry, some make me laugh, but they're all in there. And it's really important that people think about it, but you can go back in and change it over time. And so I think that's the really dynamic thing. We've just uh, added where you can physically do it yourself online. Oh. Are, are these oral or written stories or both? These are the, the national registration campaign is looking, it looks like, I'll tell you, it looks like a big baseball card. It's eight and a half by 11 when you're all done. There may be more data sitting out there, but what fits on the baseball card, think of it, like I say, it's, I collect, I was a tomboy. So the photo, what team were you on? Were you Army, Navy, Coastie? What were you? Uh, what years did you play? You know, and what were your awards? Were you a Cy Young recipient? What were your awards and decorations? That kind of thing. And then again, what were your most memorable experiences? And did you serve down, you know, overseas? Did you serve during a conflict? Any of those? We we like to flesh that all out, make it a real robust. So Tammy Duckworth looks pretty cool because we've we've added past her military service to where she became a congresswoman and then a senator because we think that when you pull her up and you look at the big screen here at the memorial, but anybody that creates an account online, there's a, on the, once you have your account created over on the far left lower, it says, find a service woman. You can type in Tammy Duckworth's name. You can now read what her baseball card story looks like. But we do have an oral history department where we have a little over 1,500, 1,500 oral histories going all the way back to World War I. Our problem is right now, we don't have the funding yet to get those digitized into a format that is consumable and usable in current day. Many of them are all reel to reel or some of them were done on Betamax tapes back in the day, right? Mm -hmm. So some of those, we've got to get them onto a more friendly platform so that people can one, listen to them and we can get them transcribed so that researchers can use them uh, for book writing and, and other purposes. In addition to audio and written stories, there are video stories as well. Some are, sit down, you see both the 
the person asking the questions as well as the person answering the questions. It's almost like a, you know, a sit down moderation story and you can watch the entire hour, hour and a half, however long others are simply almost like they were phone conversations, a little scratchy, but we can tell what they're saying. And so we, we refuse obviously to get rid of any of those. Uh, and it's just a different way. Some are simply audio. We do have audio cassettes and we want to take care of them. They're, they're safely stored climate control and everything. So they won't degauss or fall apart, but we we're working with asking like audible.com and others to help us save these incredible stories that are now in some cases over a hundred years old. With the 300,000 stories collected thus far, we were curious if there was a common theme that tied those stories together. You know, that's interesting. I think over the different eras, certainly back in world war II, um, we were permitted finally to enlist in large numbers, but we could only serve for the duration of a war plus six months. And then you were, thank you very much for your service. You're out. You could not have a career. And when in, they finally did permit you to have a career, we were capped no more than 2% of the military. But if you got pregnant, you were immediately discharged. And I've read so many of these military women that loved and adored what they were doing for the country, but you had to basically choose, were you going to have a family and get out or were you going to not have a family and stay in? Uh, and so, so often I've read until it makes my heart hurt that the frustration, the sense of loss that they were not given the opportunity to serve their country for a time that they wanted to. I think that's one of the things that hurts the most, but a really fun one, a nurse in Vietnam, she's over there serving. 9,000 women served as nurses in Vietnam during the war. And on the Vietnam War Memorial here in D.C., there are eight women's names on that wall that died, all nurses. But one of these nurses who did come home, she tells her story that and any of us that ever got a care package, even if you were away at camp or college, I suppose, and you got a, a goodie package from home. Well, she gets one and it has Twinkies, her most favorite food in the world. And her sister sent it to her. And but she opens the box and it's crawling with ants. And she's ah, but her good roommate says, hey, wait, we have a freezer, throw them in the freezer, It'll kill the ants, you flick them off. And her bottom line on this was exactly what I thought. Yep. If I had been in Iraq or Afghanistan again, and something like that had happened, I would have done the same thing. She, her bottom line on her most memorable experience, those were the best Twinkies of my life. And I just think that's exactly what we do when you're someplace where you're, you're just clinging on to any shred of human decency and things that make you feel like you're back at home. Uh, I think I, I've read so many of those kind of stories as well, as well as it, it, sacrifice, uh, things they've witnessed. It, it's just, it's whatever the woman chooses to share as her story is. And that's why this myriad, 300,000 of them, sounds like a lot, but we need 2.7 million more. So if anybody knows a, they've served, their grandmother served way back when, their great aunt, their sister, their daughter. A lot of dads are proudly claiming their daughter's place here at the memorial by registering their story of service. So you do not have to be the person that served. If you know somebody, especially if they're no longer with us, um, you can go in, create an account, first find a service woman. You might be surprised she's already registered and you can read her baseball card if she isn't 
then please take the time to tell her story. So speaking of stories, Phyllis, we'd like to hear yours. What is your story? I mean, why the Army, first of all? And just tell us about the 37 years that you spent in service to this country. Yeah, after you say the 37 years, I joined for four years and was going to get out, go to college, and done, right? <laughs> but obviously, there was something there that, that met a need deep inside of me that I didn't even know. That sense of purpose, that sense of camaraderie that each other, we knew each other had our back. I mean, like, like I'd never felt before. And I've got two brothers and two sisters who absolutely to this day have my back, but not to that degree. I think some of them might've run the other direction when things got really hard uh, and never worried about that within the military. And I just, it, and I have to tell you from pay parity, uh, I was never underpaid as a woman. I got paid exactly the same as anybody else for doing the same work, the same rank, same everything. And, uh, and they recognize if you're willing to work hard and do everything you should and mind your P's and Q's, you'll get promoted and you can continue to progress. And, and the Army just kept giving me those kind of wonderful assignments and opportunities, schooling, um, both civilian and military education. And the friends that I have made through that, uh, I, I probably would have done the same had I been a civilian. Having a civilian career, I would have made friends in my workplace too. But I, I think when you have all your kit and you've got your weapon and you've got your helmet on and you're standing someplace super hot, 140 degrees in Iraq, the people beside you become dear friends for life. And and that's just something that I couldn't find a replication anyplace else. So. That's what I chose to do, and I loved every minute of it. You're listening to the award-winning World Footprints podcast with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. World Footprints connects you to the world through powerful storytelling that uncovers the full narrative of our cultural and human experiences. Discover the world through stories at worldfootprints.com and make sure to subscribe to the World Footprints newsletter for compelling and exclusive content. Madeline Albright said, It took me quite a long time to develop a voice, and now that I have it, I am not going to be silent. Here's more of our conversation with Phyllis Wilson, president of the Military Women's Memorial, where she tells us about the National Registry campaign that lifts the voices of women who have served or are serving in the military by collecting and sharing their stories. Phyllis joined the Army as a German linguist, and then the wall came down, so she had to pivot. She left active duty, became an Army Reserve soldier, and enrolled in school to become a nurse. She also decided to learn Spanish, and the Army put her in a language immersion program in Costa Rica. Ultimately, Phyllis retired as a chief warrant officer. During her years of service, she did multiple tours, but she didn't count how many of those she did. I counted how many countries I've been to, and that's 47 countries. I wasn't assigned in all of those, thank goodness, but because um, that would have been hard. I would have been unpacking out of a suitcase constantly. Phyllis said that the Army taught her discipline and other important lessons that she transferred to civilian life. But her travels to different countries and the cultural bridges she crossed also provided valuable lessons. Cultural engagement is huge. And I think, you know, this thing of the ugly American is is one of those things that I just, it 
frustrates the daylights out of me because as soldiers, we're meant to be, especially in our uniforms, goodwill ambassadors. And nobody should be worried or scared or feeling at risk of harm from, from us normally. Now, if it's a war, all bets are off. We're there to, to win a war and do what it takes to do that. But I would say that um, engagement with so many different people, different languages, different cultures, that I hear some Americans that make fun of somebody with a, a foreign accent that's speaking English. And you can completely understand what they're saying in English. And typically the people are Americans that make fun of somebody with a foreign accent, don't speak another language except English. I'm like, God bless you. But you know what? That person, especially in Europe, I was in Europe quite a bit of time. Uh, they speak four and five languages fluently. I struggle with my German and my Spanish. I, I can read a book pretty comfortably, but the dialogue back and forth, you've got to get spun back up, right? Um, so I think that we need, as a, as a society, people come to this country and spend their tourism dollars, and then we go, go back home or, or some crazy thing that's said because somebody has a very thick foreign accent. They're over here. We go to every country in the world and fully expect when you walk up to any counter in a hotel anywhere in the world, somebody's going to speak English because we're an American and they should speak English to us, right? We would never dream of going to Thailand and think we need to know the, the local language, they'll just take care of us, right? But other people come over fully apprised that they need to speak English if they come here. So I think that's one of the things. But the biggest thing I think I learned was that I could do a heck of a lot more than I ever imagined because the military made me do it. Times when I didn't want to, my stomach was in absolute knots. I'm, thinking, I'm gonna throw up. Um, but I wanted to jump out of an airplane until I was in the airplane ready to jump out of an airplane and then I didn't want to. <laughs> but once you do it and you realize, God, that was awesome. I wanna do it again. Let's do it again. Um, and suddenly you realize the fear factor that you have, you're scared of doing something unknown you start to let shed all of that because there's always something unknown in the military and you might as well suck it up and just drive through and you come out the other side and you say, God, you feel so accomplished. I'm successful. I did that. And so now in the civilian sector, there's nothing that you can throw my way that's going to cause me to say, ooh, I'm not good enough or I can't do it. The, the army instilled in me, I am good enough, I can do it, I've proven to myself and others I've done it before. So why can't I do this now? As a travel podcast, we asked Phyllis to go deeper with her travel stories. <laughs> Ethiopia and Djibouti, oh my gosh, it's amazing. The terrain in Djibouti alone, I'm sorry, but diatribe here. Um, we drove out, we were gonna go visit some civil affairs, you know, cultural specialists down in the southern part of Djibouti. So we've got this small convoy, we've got a three-star general with us. So we're riding down through this and it looks, I swear to you, it looks like the surface of the moon. It is like volcanic rock laying around. And off in the distance, there's this tiny little rock hut and there must be five or six little naked boys running around out there, oblivious to the fact that they have nothing, you can't grow anything. They're just little kids being little kids, have no idea that the rest of the world looks any different than this very desolate, dry, looking forlorn area to me. The, to those little kids, it was a great place to run around and play. And I just thought, wow, you know, 
we've got to be more engaged across the globe on helping people. But I don't feel like they needed help. They were doing fine right where they were. So it's it's just, yeah, the travels open your eyes. And so when I hear Americans complain about anything here in this country, I just think I want to take you over and you can watch those little boys out there running around with nothing. And they're happy and and delighted with life. And how dare we be so judgmental or complain because our cell phone battery runs down too fast. You know, I mean, we just have a whole different way of looking at life. I'm always taken aback by no matter how initially I would almost have pity in my heart for how sad and it looked and dire the situation was. And then you meet the local people and they're so upbeat and they're so friendly and so kind and so generous to the point that you have to tell them no more food because they will feed you all of the food that should have gone to their family that night. If you show up at their doorstep, we would never do that in the United States. Hell, we won't even open the door, you know, and whereas (laughs) anywhere else in the globe, it seems like come on in and they'll keep bringing you food and you feel like you should keep eating unless somebody has already warned you, tell them you're full, stop, push the plate, but you can't clean your plate. You've got to leave a little something on there so that they know you truly are full Mm -hmm. um, in some parts of the world. Otherwise, if you clean their plate, that means they're going to put more on. And that means some of those kids may not have food tonight. Um, They're that giving of anybody, not because you're an American, of anybody that shows up on their doorstep, even enemies. Um, In some cultures, you knock on their door and you ask for safety. They're, They're required to bring you in, hide you, safeguard you. Even if they don't agree with who you are, what you are, but if you knocked on the door and asked for safekeeping, they have to do it. Uh, we would never do that. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's so different. And it, I think the, the simpler the lives, sometimes the, the happier I've seen, it seems to me some of them are much happier than we are when we're just trying to chase that almighty dollar and have a better car or a bigger house or whatever it may be. They, they found a way to be content and I don't know if being content is, a, is an American uh, trait. When asked about her most transformative travel experience. I would have to say Afghanistan. Yeah, um, visiting there and just, it's beautiful. The country is just gorgeous. The mountain ranges, it, it, and you just hope it sees its promise, its future, its everything and then you see the death and destruction and the the horrible side of people you know just it it i couldn't wrap my brain around why this continues to happen we're 20 years nearly down the road since 9-11 and we're still there and we're still seeing these these horrible behaviors that just to me i can't wrap my brain around it but the country itself flying in or visiting, touring, driving across the country, it is, oh my gosh, it makes our mountains look pale. Well, they're much higher mountains there too. I mean, it's just, it's gorgeous, but I just, it saddens me. It just made me very sad. So as far as transformational, I came in there very, you know, we're going to fix this. We're going to do better. The country's going to turn around and it, you know, and no, it's, but I hold out hope. I will never lose hope that, that Afghanistan someday will be every bit that it, it has the capacity to be. 
As we do with all of our guests, we ask Phyllis who she would choose to sit next to, past or present, on a long-haul flight to Afghanistan or another favorite country. Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She just passed away this past fall, and I will tell you that she is a military spouse. Her husband, Martin, served in the Army in the 1950s. Um, if you've ever watched the RBG movie, oh my goodness, that woman is amazing. One of eight women in her law school, uh, even the dean of law school says, I don't know what you women are doing here. You've taken seats that a man should have. Um, so she knew she had to be better than, and she clearly was. But in the early 70s, she uh, heard about a military woman who was married to a civilian man. And if it was the other way around, a military man married to a civilian woman, you get a military housing allowance because you have a, a family. Um, if you were the woman with the civilian man, you didn't get it unless you could prove that you provided more than 50% of the household responsibilities, monies. Uh, otherwise you couldn't get your husband covered for a military ID card, which meant he didn't have military medical care. He couldn't go to on post, all these crazy things. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg heard about it. She's like, oh, that's crazy. So she took this case all the way and defended it in front of the Supreme Court. And that landmark case changed so many other things, not just that, for military women and military families, all the way up until into the 1990s. The service academies, West Point, the Air Force Academy, Navy Academy, they were not open to women until 1976. She didn't have anything to do with that particular case. So our first women graduates from the service academies was not until 1980 because we were legally not allowed to go. In the 1990s, Virginia Military Institute, VMI, was still an all-male location. And she took that case on. It did not make it all the way to the Supreme Court. And I'd like to think it's because RBG said, I'll take that case. And VMI ultimately uh, conceded and women have been able to go since that case was brought in the 90s. But last fall, when she passed away and was being brought here by motorcade to be laid to rest next to her husband, who's buried here at Arlington, uh, we had an officer and an enlisted woman from all six services, including the new Space Force, out front of the memorial. The memorial had black drapes hung down the front. And we rendered General Vaught the president emeritus and founder and myself and these women in their dress uniforms rendered the last salute to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Justice Ginsburg, as she, the motorcade came and made the turn to go to where she was going to be laid to rest. Uh, and one of the things she said, uh, which just is emblematic to me of the military as well, she was asked how many women should be on the Supreme Court and for anybody that doesn't know, there are nine members on the Supreme Court. And she thought for a minute and she smiled her sheepish little grin that she can do and said nine. And the reporter asked nine, why nine? And she said, when there were nine men on the court, nobody thought anything about it. Why can't there be nine women? And I love that story. And she is such an incredibly well-read, well-informed, and just a, a legal scholar. I mean, I could... I could do the 17-hour flight over to Afghanistan and pick her brain for, for the entirety until she told me to be quiet. But I would love to ride with her. 
As we ended our conversation with Phyllis about the National Registry for Military Women, the legacy of military women have provided, and her travel experiences, we learned about another very important mission that the Military Women's Memorial Foundation has embarked on, and they need your help. In World War II, there was an African-American all-women's battalion, 855 women, the only thing like it that was sent overseas in World War II. These women, led by Major Charity Adams Early, also an African-American woman, which I can tell you, most times, African-American units were led by white officers, not this time. Charity Adams Early led this organization. They arrived in England. They had to clear out two years' worth of mail, backlogged mail that had not gotten to the soldiers in Europe. They were given six months to do it. She and her team were so incredibly efficient, they got it done in three months. So the military always rewards you for doing a great job by asking you to do it all over again. They send them to France. Same problem, two plus years, millions and millions of pieces of mail, backlog, just sitting in warehouses. And they used the same system they had devised in England and they cleared all of this mail, either got it to the soldiers or if the soldier had been killed, they bundled all of the mail that they found and shipped it back home to the families to have those letters in, in that instance. As a result of this, when they shipped back home in February of 1946, now think that the war in Europe ended in April of 45, they stayed there that much longer to clear all this mail and get everything done. But uh, when they came back, there were no ticker tape parades. There was no thank you, they were just, sent home. We have been working with Congress now for several years, and we believe this is the year, 2021, to get the Congressional Gold Medal to this unit. They have done incredible things. They worked not only through sexism as women in the military, they dealt with racism, and they also dealt with Nazi Germany. Pretty impressive group of 855 women. Sadly, only seven of them are still alive. The youngest is 97 years old. We're asking Congress to approve the Congressional Gold Medal for this unit so that these women that are still alive can participate in the celebration and the ceremony that is always held when Congressional Gold Medals are awarded up on Capitol Hill. So we need your help to reach out to your local, to your senator and representative to let them know that if they aren't yet sponsoring it, they need to get on board and support this. The sooner, the better. These ladies, as I said, they run from 97 to 102. Um, and we don't have much time if we're going to do it while some of them are still alive. This interview, dear, was so powerful in, in so many ways. I can't even begin to, to start. What I do want to make sure that we share with our audience is that the National Registry campaign is going on now. It will be continual. And it's important that if anyone listening has a family member or friend that has served or uh, is currently serving, to let them know about this campaign so that they can also uh, preserve their stories uh, to inspire generations uh, to come. Uh, in addition, the gold medal award for the six AAA. I think that's very important, and I think it'll take all of us reaching out to our Congress member to support that bill. 
And it's very important that these stories get out there. As uh, Phyllis mentioned, there's only 300,000 stories collected thus far. I know I have family uh, who've served in the Navy, who've served in the Air Force. We both do. Yeah, and, uh, and I'm just speaking of the women in my family. So uh, I would encourage uh, uh, my cousins to uh, check this site out. And Phyllis really uh, had a lot to offer Uh, our audience today and I encourage anyone who comes to Washington when they take that solemn trip to Arlington to keep in mind that this memorial is right there too so that's something that uh, you should see when uh, you do visit Arlington. Absolutely and I can't believe how many times we passed by it without knowing that it was there and I can't wait to to visit and even climb the terrace and get some incredible photographic views of the Lincoln Memorial and Arlington Cemetery. I mean I think it's just really a, a gem again that is hidden in plain sight that we all need to take advantage of and it's open. It's open right now. In closing, we'd like to leave you with these words from Harriet Beecher Stowe. Women are the real architects of society. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we are so honored that you chose to spend this time with us. We'd like to thank Ed Cole for providing editorial assistance. And of course, we thank you for allowing us to connect you to the world through the stories we share on World Footprints. This World Footprints podcast with Ian and Tonya Fitzpatrick is a production of World Footprints, LLC, Silver Spring, Maryland. The multi-award winning podcast is available on worldfootprints.com and on audio platforms worldwide, including iHeartRadio, Public Radio Exchange, iTunes and Stitcher. Connect with the world one story at a time with World Footprints. Visit worldfootprints.com to enjoy more podcasts and explore hundreds of articles from international travel writers. And be sure to subscribe to the newsletter. World Footprints is a trademark of World Footprints LLC, which retains all rights to the World Footprints portfolio, including worldfootprints.com and this podcast.